And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Of course, it's Tuesday, so we've got a few things to go through on kind of about the markets, a little bit about the technicals of what's going on, of course. And, uh, of course, this week also... Inflation week, we've got the big inflation report coming out. Will it be weak enough to maybe get the Fed to pause a bit here? Well, we'll see. Estimates are right now that potentially inflation could be about where it was back in February because used car prices have been back on the rise, believe it or not. And uh, home price declines have actually slowed down here a bit. So inflation may remain a little bit elevated because we're starting to still have those wage pressures, those labor costs. Uh, coming through and that's creating some concern for the Fed of course because one of their concerns over inflation is what's called a wage price spiral and that's where wages keep going up you don't have enough labor in the market so that drives demand for employment that requires higher wages and that creates more inflation in the economy so we'll see tomorrow how this comes out because but again you know this is going to be one of the key kind of turning points for the markets there is a tremendous number of shorts right now in the markets that have really piled in over the last couple of weeks ahead of this inflation data. I've got the hiccups this morning. I'm sorry. Um, But that very large short position, if that inflation number comes in weaker than expected, right, which suggests that maybe the Fed can pause here sooner than later and maybe even start cutting rates, you could see a very sharp upside to the markets as those shorts have to cover. So again, uh, uh, tomorrow could be, you know, when we get this inflation data out, we could see a good bit of volatility one direction or the other. Of course, a, a number that is well too hot could send this market a bit lower as well, expecting the Fed needs to hike more uh, than just one more rate hike uh, over the course of the next couple weeks. Also, we've got a lot of Fed speakers out today as well. So Again, as we start hearing from a lot of these Fed members, they're going to be out talking kind of their book, so to speak, as that Fed meeting's coming up. Uh, they've got a little bit of time here to try to prep the market about what's going to happen next. So I would expect to hear a little bit of talk about inflation still too high. We still need to hike rates, kind of putting that, that potential out there in the markets. We'll see what they say, but we've got a lot of Fed speakers on deck for today, so we'll have some news flow throughout the day on that. Other than that, though, the markets are doing really just fine. The buy signal remains in place that we've been talking about here for a while. It's not extended. Um, Markets are doing okay. Yesterday, we did trim off our our, uh, investment in the NASDAQ index a bit because that index has gotten very well ahead of itself here recently. Year to date, the NASDAQ is up about 20, kind of the big cap tech names are up about 26%. X, the, the, the technology sector in the S&P, the S&P, which is up about 6%, 7% for this year um, right now, would only be up 2% without the technology sector. But you've had a very, very big run in technology stocks here from those October lows. And that's really been fueling a lot of the drive in the S&P. In fact, about 80 to 90% of the entire gain in the S&P this year has been driven by the top 10 stocks, where it's almost entirely technology stocks, Apple, Microsoft, NVIDIA, et cetera, Google. Uh, Those have been on a, a tear here lately, and that's really been pushing 
this NASDAQ index up higher. So again, it's much more overbought and it's actually fairly close to triggering a short-term sell signal. That weakness in technology stocks yesterday while the rest of the market was rallying was kind of that key indicator. So we did go ahead and, and sell our position in the, in the queues. But we're still long the S&P and, and our equal weight index, at least for now, because, again, markets are, are trending positively. So we want to have that exposure, uh, at least for now, along with our other stocks. So, again, just kind of really, this has really been a bifurcated market. Very interestingly, because last year, everybody absolutely hated technology stocks. In fact, I wrote an article at the beginning of November asking the question, are FANG stocks dead? That was the headlines that were ringing out everywhere. Apple's dead, Microsoft's dead, those companies are done, they're never coming back again. Of course, those are now leading the markets this year, while energy, which was last year's big winner, has been dragging this year. So again, just a very much of a flip-flop between the, the previous year's leaders and this year's laggards. Very interesting to see. Um, but other than that, just kind of keep a watch on this. Again, you know, when we're looking at, you know, the economy and the markets, and all these type of things, you know, there's going to be these short-term kind of movements in the markets, but longer-term fundamentals matter. And speaking of fundamentals, of course, by May the 5th, which is just three weeks out or so, uh, we will have 84% of the entire S&P 500 will have reported. The week of April 24th, we'll have a very large chunk. Of, we have a, a, just a, a big mash of companies that will all report the week of April 24th. So over the, uh, starting this, the end of this week, Thursday and Friday, we'll start with major banks. But over the next three weeks, it is really going to be a rush of earnings that are coming in. And that's really going to be driving the markets. Expectations are that... Profit margins are going to remain elevated, and in fact, technology, speaking of that, they're going to increase their profit margins by 140 basis points this year. That'll put profit margins for tech stocks back to all-time highs by the end of this year. So that is certainly suggesting a no-recession scenario in the economy. So analysts and Wall Street are expecting no recession, and they're expecting a return of consumption to a, a fairly strong degree. Now, this is following, of course, this analysis is following a report yesterday that we just saw PC cells just take a huge dump. In fact, Apple had one of the, the, the biggest declines in Mac sales by 40%. So, you know, while a lot of people are expecting profit margins to come surging back, I think the one question that we need to be asking ourselves, and at least asking the analysts, is, well, hey, hang on a second, where is this money going to come from for this demand increase, which will allow you to have more profitability? Because again, in order to have profitability, I need demand to outstrip supply, which means I can raise prices and offset my higher labor costs, right? That's how I get a higher profit margin. So to increase my profit margin by 140 basis points, I need a lot more demand. Well, where's that going to come from? Because in 2020-21, we had $5 trillion worth of liquidity jumped into household checks, right, that people had to spend. That doesn't exist anymore. All those extra benefits and cash flows, et cetera, those aren't there. So where is all of this extra spending power going to come from to drive this massive surge in profit margins? Seems to me that markets have gotten a little bit ahead of reality, but we'll find out again over the next three weeks. Earnings are going to be really kind of the telltale story and what companies say, more importantly, is going to be about the future of where they see things up. What is their outlook on profit margins? I have a suspicion that a lot of these current analyst views will change quite a bit 
after we get through this earnings season. So uh, again, look for some volatility here in markets over the next few days. But markets doing just fine here. And again, as I was saying a second ago with the S&P, nothing wrong with the S&P right now. We're up to the top of this kind of downtrend channel that we've been in for a while. Markets have been kind of struggling here this this morning. Futures are pointing higher at the open, so we may get some follow through from yesterday's action. Yesterday's action was actually good. We opened fairly weak yesterday morning. The Nasdaq was down about over 1%. And by the end of the day, we recovered all of those losses. And in fact, the S&P broke into positive territory. So again, yesterday's overall market action was very bullish. Lots of buying all day long. We're gonna see some follow through of that today. If the markets can move above this downtrend line from the April highs, um, kind of opens up potential for, for a move higher. Uh, that could be supportive if earnings come, come in better than expected. Um, lots of stuff to get into this morning. We'll talk about bullishness uh, in the market. So really the lack thereof. We'll talk about that when we come back from the break. I'm your host, Lance Roberts, realinvestmentadvice.com. daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. What's new with Social Security this year? Our next Lunch and Learn will reveal seven things to watch in 2023. Thursday, April 13th at noon, Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff will share Social Security claiming strategies, the 2023 COLA, and earnings tests. Our What's New with Social Security this year Lunch and Learn with Ratliff and Rosso, April 13th. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com, realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. So welcome back to the show this morning. Uh, a few things to get into uh, this morning. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about um, you know, kind of this interesting dichotomy between what Wall Street is expecting from companies this earnings season and what the outlook is for the rest of this year versus what is going on with actual consumers, which is where earnings come from, right? So we'll get into that in a second. But I, I do want to talk a little bit about the kind of the bullish backdrop right now for the markets. And this is something that we're regularly challenged on in terms of our views on how we manage money in the markets. Not not just mine, all of us, all everyone, right? As is always the case, we have a propensity to kind of pick a side. Either we're kind of bullish about the markets or we're bearish about the markets. And so we tend to invest accordingly. And what we have to pay attention to is what is the market doing versus what do we think it's supposed to be doing? And sometimes those can be very different things. And and now is one of those. And it's interesting because markets are doing fine, right? Markets are up nicely this year, 6, 7% for the year. If you, if you, uh, if you have an annual rate of return in your portfolio of 6%, and you're invested all in the S&P 500, you could literally sell today and just come back next year because you've already got your 6% done for the year. And, you know, people won't do that because they're hoping there'll be more, right? So <laughs> that's the greed factor. That's the emotion. 
But this, this really comes down to, you know, a very interesting dichotomy that's going on between mar- what markets are doing and what the overall sentiment is of the markets and what investors feel overall. And it's interesting because uh, today's article is talking about bullishness is, is, remains missing in the markets. And that's a good thing because as we, we've spoken before, that when everybody is bearish, that typically tends to be the bottom of the market. When everybody's on one side of the boat, when everybody's bullish, same thing will happen. But extreme sentiment typically denotes either market tops or bottoms. And last October, we had extremely bearish sentiment. Everybody was bearish. Everybody was convinced of recession. We wrote some articles talking about contrarian investing and, and why that typically leads to better outcomes than what people expect. And, and again, since, since then, markets have rallied nicely. And there's still a good bit of bearishness in the markets. In fact, um, I run an analysis on our... We in our kind of our weekly newsletter um, every week, I post a chart of our fear greed gauge. Part of that, and, and that fear greed gauge is different than the CNN fear greed gauge. And the, and the reason I don't use the CNN gauge is because the CNN fear greed gauge uses the S and P five hundred to measure the S and P five hundred, which kind of takes away from the effectiveness of of what you're trying to measure, right? So our gauge is looking at how investors are feeling. What is their sentiment? How are they investing? Are they more heavily invested in equities or cash or bonds, right? And so we look at these different measures of investor sentiment and positioning to gauge are they more fearful or not of the markets. And so what this gauge looks like is both retail and institutional investors. And when investors, and, and not the, the results are not surprising, when they're very bullish, that typically tends to be closer to market peaks. When they're extremely bearish, that tends to be closer to market bottoms. And that's exactly what you would expect that to be. But, and that's where we are right now. Um, investors right now currently remain very bearish, and they are not really in this position of being more bullish right now. There's there's too much negative headline news everywhere that we look around. It's like, oh, the recession's coming. There's all this negative recessionary economic data, yet markets are doing okay, but investors remain very bearish. And, And this is kind of the, you know, where Star Wars was wrong. In, in Star Wars, Darth Vader asks Luke, he says, search your feelings. Who's your father? Right? Who's your daddy? Search your feelings. And, of course, you know, he screams in agony when he realizes that Darth Vader's his father, right? Well, in, in financial markets, searching your feelings can lead you to make the wrong decisions. And this is an important aspect to our investing outcomes. And, you know, it's kind of an interesting note. You know, 
it's often said that markets compound at some percentage rate annually, right? The Dow, the S&P, whatever, pick a number. There's all of them out there is like 6%. Just invest your money in the markets and you'll grow your money at 8% on average, right? There's all these calculators out there. So you want to retire a millionaire, that's awesome. Put $100 in an account, compound it at 12% for the next 30 years, and voila, you're a millionaire. Sounds awesome. Problem is that markets don't work that way. Markets don't compound, despite the media commentary to the contrary. Because if markets would return 5% every single year, it would work, right? Or 12% or whatever the number is. If markets actually delivered 12% every single year, you know, everybody would be rich. But markets don't work that way. We just had a 20% down year in 2022 and so there's some simple math behind this if you just think about this for a second let's just let's let's just do a very simple exercise that we can all do kind of in our heads right now and i'll do the math part for you just because i've already done it before <laughs> but just follow me along <laughs> but assume i want 10 percent a year so year one i make 10 percent of my money Great. So my annual compounded return now for the first year is 10%. Second year, I make 10% again. Average the two years together. My annual compounded rate is 10%. Third year, I make another 10%. I'm doing good, right? My average annual compounded return is, that's right, 10%. I've averaged 10% every single year. In year four, I lose 10%. Now, here's the interesting part about this. One year of negative growth has a compounded effect on the overall average return. So first of all, that 10% loss in year four cuts my average annual return to 5%. To get back to my 10% annual return in year five, how much money do I need to make? Right? Now, off the, you know, kind of just, off the cuff, everybody says, oh, it's 20%, right? Because you didn't make 10% last year, so you got to make that 10% plus this 10% this year. So 20% will get you back to 10% annualized. That's wrong. It's actually 33%. And the reason is, is not only did I lose 10% in year four, I also didn't make the 10% I was supposed to make in year four, plus I have to make the 10% in year five. This is the problem with losses. And that's why there's such a vast difference between what investors think they should have made versus what they actually made. And, if, and I did this chart in, the, in today's blog post on the website. It's the Dow Jones Industrial Average going back to 1900. And I took the value of the Dow Jones in 1900. And I said, okay, let's just compound that value at 5% every year versus an inflation-adjusted return of the Dow Jones. The difference is about 820,000 points. Because the Dow currently right around 35,000-ish versus it should have been at 860,000-ish at 5% compounded annually. So 
if the Dow had been averaging 5% a year every single year and compounding that, the Dow would be around 860000 a day, not 35000 Why the difference is because of the years that it lost money, that it was negative, those down years. And those, those down years, those periods where the Dow didn't make money or didn't really go anywhere lasted a long time in a lot of cases. And so this is the big difference between expectations and reality and why it's so important to navigate markets to avoid that downside risk because of that net compounded effect of negativity on overall rates of return over time. Markets don't compound. You'll hear from the media all the time, the, the most significant power, the eighth wonder of the world, the magic of compounding in markets. Markets don't compound. The only way you can compound your money in the markets is to buy fixed income. Ben Franklin. So this is the, the things to pay attention to. But as we kind of go forward again, you know, this, this you know, is, is also part of that psychology of investors and this is why despite all of the media commentary about buy and hold investing all this other stuff dalbar does a study every year and they go back over 30 years and they look at how investors did versus the market and there's about a three percent or so average compounded difference of loss relative to the index in other words the average equity investor made about 6.8% versus 9.5%, 9.6% for the S&P 500 index. That difference is the psychological and behavioral mistakes that investors make by being in the markets, out of the markets, all at the wrong time, right? This has an impact on what's going on with individuals in America today. And we'll talk about that when we come back from the break. Don't go away. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com The article that um, we were kind of going through just a second ago talking about sentiments and how markets actually work over time. It's on the website this morning. It's called Bullish and Remains Missing, which is a good thing. And suggests that a lot of investors are still kind of on the wrong side of the ledger at the moment. And again, that just provides the fuel, the catalyst, so to speak, for the markets to do things you don't necessarily expect. And so you have to give it some credence in that regard when we're investing money but i want to go back and, and real quick just kind of touch on that one chart about the differential between compounded rates of market returns versus what actually happens because you know this is the big fallacy of markets i want you to think about something with me for a second right 
Starting in 1980, we had a bull market that averaged about 15% a year from 1980 to 2000. Then, yeah, you had that little blip there called the dot-com crash from 2001, 2, and 3. And then you had another bull market from 2003 to 2007. Had that little blip in 2008. I know, those, those blips were 50% drawdowns. But point is, is you went through that. And then you had another major, the, the bull market of bull markets, right? It has started in 2009 and continues on today. So theoretically, if the market is right, and if what all of these mainstream media gurus are that tell you to buy and hold, invest, just buy an ETF, stick it in the markets, don't worry about it. If they're all right, everybody should be rich, right? question is, is why aren't they what happened why is it that such a large percentage of americans don't have any money really to invest Here, here's a recent survey from uh, cnbc 58 percent of americans living paycheck to paycheck including those earning six figures between higher costs and possible recession on the rise in family feel and families feel increasingly strained financially, more than half or 58% of all Americans now living paycheck to paycheck, according to a CNBC Your Money Financial Confidence survey. Even more, roughly 70% said they feel financially stressed about their finances. And how is that possible? Right? If everybody's doing what they're supposed to do, contributing to 401k plans and IRAs and investing in the markets and saving money and all this stuff that, that the media assures us is going on, right? We're just buy and hold investing. We're just buying ETFs and everything's going up. We're all good. How is it that 70% of Americans feel financially stressed? Because as I showed you, markets don't work that way. Markets don't compound at 6 8 or 10% a year. And those little blips that we had in 2001 and 2 and 2008 that takes away 50% of your capital destroys all of your compounding for decades, right? This is why it's so important while the media kind of fluffs stuff off. It's like, oh, just buy and hold stuff. It's fine. You don't have to worry about managing your money. That's crazy. Crazy talk. But avoiding those downturns is much more important than gains. This is the part we failed to, to focus on. Think about it this way. You're playing poker. Right? So you lose hands. You're losing money. And the problem is that if you lose enough money playing poker and you've only got, say, $1,000 to start with, right? Just pick a number, $100. I don't know what you go to. If you were going to go to Vegas and gamble, how much money would you take with you? Start with that number in your head. But you lose half of it right up front. I mean, just bam, right out of the gate, you're losing every single hand at the blackjack table. The problem is, is that now you have to gauge how much risk you're willing to take on the next set of hands because you've just lost 10 hands in a row and you've lost half your money. So odds are that you're going to do one of a couple of things. 
one, you're going to go, not my day, take your money, and you're going to leave, right? What money you have left, you're going to leave. So now you've lost half your money, and you're out, right? You're done. You go have the buffet, and you go lay out by the pool and sunbake, right? Or you keep playing, but you start betting really small. And you win a hand, right? So you win a little bit. But the problem is, is that I might lose the next hand, right? You get that psychological loop now of loss. And so you don't invest accordingly because now you're worried about losing more money. And you've only got so much money to last you the weekend because your wife said, hey, if once you lose whatever money that was in your head, you can't go tap the credit card, <laughs> Right. So you, you consciously know you can't lose any more money. Well, this, ha this is exactly what happens in the financial markets. When people lost 50% of their money in 2008, they took what money they had left, and they left. They never came back to the markets. I, we talk to you all the time about how people are, are coming in now, 12 years later, going, well, I've been out of the market since 2008. I'm ready to get back in. Really, now? <laughs> it's been 12 years of a bull market. you want to get in now? Or... They just left whatever money they had invested in the markets and whatever it was in and just kind of shoved the statements in the drawer and haven't even looked at it since then and haven't been saving and investing any more money. They're just like, I, I'm not going to take any more risk. That, that's all the risk I'm going to take. But that's why the outcomes in the financial markets are so vastly different than what the media tells you it is. Another article out this morning. Fifty-two percent of U.S. adults said their financial stress has increased since before the COVID-19 pandemic began in March of 2020. Anxious and uncertain about whether they can get better handles on their money, some may be intimidated by the prospect of creating a budget. Really? I'm having a financial trouble, but I don't want to go to budget. This is kind of like saying, you know, I've, I've got this, you know, <laughs> this gushing wound on my body, right? I was, I was just stabbed by, a, by the Bud Light night, and <laughs> I don't want to go to the doctor to get it stitched up because I'm not sure exactly what that means, right? I, it's a, really, you don't want to do a budget because you're worried that, you know, your, your bleeding will have to stop on your money. I, I, I don't get it. But this is part of that psychology, right? This is part of that same fear. I'm not going to take, because I'm afraid I've been hurt, I've been damaged psychologically in the financial markets or the economy, whatever it is. I'm not going to take any actions to fix it because that may be more painful than what I'm going through now. You know, having to give up my spending to fix the problem may not be, may be worse than it is. And that just makes no sense, but that's the way people think about things. People are worried that the money they saved, this is a quote from the survey, people are worried that the money they've saved won't last and are worried they're going to have to lean more on credit cards and other sources of debt just to get by.
And this is part of, of the problem. Uh, I, I told you about the Dalbar survey. So every year Dalbar does a survey and they look at investors and they go, okay, well, first of all, we know that over 30 years, investors have underperformed the S&P 500 index because of emotional biases, all the things they do wrong. They sell at the wrong time, buy at the wrong time. What are the other reasons? And basically it comes down to three factors. One is that they don't have the money to invest, so they don't invest. Two, they use the money for other things other than investing. Trips, whatever, right? I'm going to go buy a truck rather than put that money in the market and let it invest. And the third is, is the nine basic psychological behavioral biases that destroy returns over time. And those are the three factors why investors underperform consistently over time. But 50% of the reason they underperform is using the money for other things or not having any money to invest, which are identically the same thing. But that's half the reason. The other half the reason they underperform is all the psychological behaviors. But this, is, but this comes down to the very heart of what we have to do as investors is to shun all that crap we hear on television every day. All of those negative media headlines, bullish media headlines. I mean, right now there's just podcast for podcast out there on YouTube about the end of the world, de-dollarization, all this stuff that's getting investors off on the wrong side of the markets. And that's the thing that we have to be attent pay attention to. That's the thing that we have to be aware of. Because that's that 50% of the problem that leads us to making the wrong financial decisions for ourselves and for our families. Be right back. Investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. There's a couple of uh, interesting other things this morning uh, to kind of wrap up the show. Parents are overextended. This is on uh, CNBC also this morning, kind of fell in line with the other articles on people making bad financial and investing mistakes. Speaking of bad financial mistakes, parents are overextending themselves to help their adult children financially. It was interesting in the survey, 51% of respondents say that they have sacrificed their emergency savings and 20% felt they sac that sacrifice was significant. 49% of surveyed parents said they sacrificed debt, uh, debt payoff goals. 18% said they sacrificed significantly. 43% uh, 
of parents that helping adult children had a negative effect on their retirement savings. 18% saying that was, impact was significant. 55% of survey respondents also sacrificed reaching some other financial milestone. Here's the interesting thing about this. This is both boomers and Gen Zers, by the way, uh, in this survey. This is short-sighted on behalf of the parents. This is why I don't pay for kids' college. It's not my responsibility. If they want to go to college, they can pay for it. That's their choice. I meet with parents all the time that feel they have a moral obligation to pay for their children's college. Now, you may be saying, yeah, well, why, why shouldn't I pay for my kids' college? They need to go to school. Okay, that's fine. If you choose to do that, that's okay. After they're out of college, where does the safe support safety net end? Just meeting with a couple, couple weeks ago, kid living at home, 32 years of age. When do you cut the safety net off? Here's the consequence of this. You may be thinking that you're helping them now, but you have now utilized so much of your money to help them, either by paying for college or for helping them with other stuff, that you have now sacrificed your savings, your retirement savings, to a large degree. I, I have met people that have spent their entire nest egg sending their kids to school. They are now approaching retirement and they have no money saved up. And again, we go back to those financial statistics. 80% of Americans don't have $500 in the bank, et cetera, so forth and so on. So here's the problem with this that people don't think about. They go, oh, I have this moral obligation to help my children. Really? But are you helping them? Because what you have done now is put yourself in the position of being a burden on them later in life. This is why we're seeing more and more families now that are multi-generational where what we call the sandwich generation, the kids are having to take care of their kids and the parents because the parents didn't prepare properly for retirement. So now they're a burden on their children. Now, what does that set up for their children? What does that do to household cash flows? What does that do to financial security for that generation? So by sacrificing your savings to help them today, you are setting them up for a burden later on in life. Now, if you can afford it, right? I mean, if, if literally, if... You know, if you make enough money and you're saving well and you're funding your emergency fund and you're doing your investing and you've got everything on track for retirement and you've got extra cash to help your kids, go for it. I that That's all fine. Then you can just talk about the moral things about it. Are you teaching them a good lesson about finances, right? Are you giving them a good financial education by bailing them out every time they get in trouble? Are you an enabler or are you an advisor, Right. That's that's the choice you can have. You can have that conversation with yourself if you've got enough cash flow. But 
if you're eating into, and again, you'll go back through these numbers, 51% of respondents say they sacrificed emergency savings. That means they didn't have money anywhere else. 49% of parents said they sacrificed debt payoff goals. That means they're up to their eyeballs in debt. They were trying to pay off their debt, but they sacrificed that goal to help their kids pay off their debt or get out of financial trouble, whatever it was. 43% had a negative impact on retirement savings. 55% sacrificed other financial goals. How does that pay off? What's the return on investment? If your kids are consistently getting into financial straits because they're getting into too much credit card debt, doing stupid things with money, etc., Every time you help them out, are you helping them or are you enabling them? Tough love sucks, right? Nobody wants to do tough love, but sometimes it's required. Do I help my kids? Of course I help my kids. But I do it in manners that are not enabling. If they get themselves into trouble, they have to get themselves out of trouble financially. Once they get themselves out of financial trouble and they have figured out that lesson, then I might help them do something. I would say, okay, look, you know, now that we got yourself out of trouble, tell you what we're going to do we're going to open up a savings account over here i'm going to fund it with 500 bucks and i expect you to put whatever you're going to put into it every month right so i can help them that way but they've learned the lesson of i'm not going to do that again so far i've been lucky we haven't done the credit card thing yet so so far i've been able to keep them out of credit cards but we'll see how long that lasts <laughs> I don't have the same marketing power that banks do, <laughs> especially when they're showing up to college campuses going, hey, want a credit card? Here you go. But these are the things that as parents, it's tough to do. And we have to make these very tough decisions. And sometimes you have to make the decision. I know we all love our children and we all want to help our children and, and you know we sacrifice for our children. That's the way we're taught as boomers and Gen Zers. But sometimes you have to make that decision to put yourself first, not because you're being selfish or greedy. It's because you don't want to be a burden on your children later in life. And that's what most people are doing. Why we have such a rise in multi-generational families living together. Because they don't have a choice. Sure, we can blame inflation. We can blame high housing costs. We can blame all those things, right? But those are all choices. But these are the things we have to think about. I like this survey. So when do you think that children should be paying their own way? Right? So they, they surveyed boomers and Gen Zers. They said, when do you think the appropriate age for individuals to pay their own way? Gen Zers responsibly, the average age people should start paying their own credit card bills is 21. Boomers say it's 19. 
Obviously, I'm a boomer. <laughs> Gen Z respondents think you should be responsible for paying your car insurance starting at the age of 22. Boomers say 19. Mine's 16. You pay your insurance when you get your car. When you start to drive, you get you pay your insurance. Finally, according to Gen Z, the average age to start paying for housing is the age of 23, while baby boomers believe you should be doing that when you turn 21. Mine is 18. <laughs> exactly. When you become old enough to vote, you are an adult. You can make your own decisions, and you're responsible for those decisions. That's it. It's that simple. And, you know, this is the part that we've got to get back to in terms of if we want to build better foundations for our children, can we help them? Yes. We help them by educating them. We help them by guiding them. We help them by advising them. We don't help them by enabling them. That's the part you've got to remember. Are you an enabler? Or are you an advisor? And which creates better outcomes over time? And look, this is these are hard decisions. I'm not saying it's easy. It is tough to cut off that financial purse string. Pay your own phone bill. Start small, right? Pay your car insurance. You're on your own. Car insurance is yours. Pay your own phone bill. You know, pick something that they will have to do, right? If you tell them to pay their own phone bill, 30, 40, 50 bucks a month, whatever it is, they'll pay that phone bill. They'll figure it out because they want to be online and they want to talk to their friends and social media. Pick something that they have to that they that they think they can't live without. Make them pay for it. A, they'll value it more when they pay for it. But B, you will start teaching them the importance of having to meet a bill on time. All right. Wraps up the show for today. Preaching is over. Have a great day. Be back tomorrow. Uh, get by our website. Our new blog post is out. Bullishness remains missing, which is a good thing. That's on the site now. Markets are uh, pointing up this morning just a smidge. Actually flat now. Uh, we'll see how we open up today. Three minutes on markets and money coming up here on our Before the Bell channel. That'll be out here very shortly. So make sure you're subscribed to that channel as well. Uh, we have this channel that you're watching now for The Real Investment Show. Click that little bell icon for notification. Make sure you're subscribed. But also subscribe to our Before the Bell channel as well and click that bell icon so you get notified when we release our before the bell videos every morning right around the market open so again have a great day see you back here tomorrow for the next real investment show